0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in, Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast episode, number 229, the Kowloon Walled City, finally. An oft-requested topic throughout the years, Hong Kong's been on my mind a lot lately, so I'm dedicating this episode special to all Hong Kong listeners and everyone else who loves that place, I have a special affinity with the Kowloon Walled City. For the first five and a half years that I lived in Hong Kong, I worked a few minutes away from there in a district just to the south called Tokwa Wan. The Kowloon Walled City, this tiny little seven-acre plot of land, was located in the Kowloon City District right across the street from Kai Tak Airport, the old airport of Hong Kong, the new and improved one, opened in 1997. I was constantly driving back and forth between the office in Toh Wan and Kai Tak, and I passed by the walled city all the time. And I flew over it a hundred times, landing at Kai Tak. And I knew a guy. Li Ming Tong was his name. And he was born and raised there and knew the place as well as any resident. And my one and only time inside this famous and historic structure was when A Dong gave me a personalized tour. This would have been around 1991 or 92, just before it was torn down. In Chinese, it's called the Jiu Long Jai Cheng, or Jiu Long Cheng Jai, depending on your preference. A jai is an administrative term, meaning a fort where an official resided. Although located on the Kowloon Peninsula in the territory of Hong Kong, the walled city, for a while anyway, Remain Chinese sovereign territory following the First Opium War when, well, according to the terms of the Treaty of Nanjing, Hong Kong was ceded in perpetuity to Great Britain. The Walled City, however, was in the New Territories. That part of the colony, north of Boundary Street in Kowloon, that ran all the way north to the border with China. So it wasn't part of the deal that ceded Hong Kong Island to Britain. Now, ontologically speaking, I suppose the story of the Kowloon-walled city began way back in the Cretaceous period, 145 to 65 million years ago. You all recall from your science class the end Cretaceous extinction event. Most life on Earth was snuffed out, dinosaurs included. As I mentioned in that History of Hong Kong series... One thing that came out of this end-Cretaceous extinction event was the creation of these massive salt formations. And these salt formations were the initial thing that brought some semblance of an economy to Hong Kong. And during the Qin and the Han dynasties, business was booming. And this little, teeny-tiny speck of land at the very bottom of the Chinese landmass by the southern Song Dynasty... 13th century or so, because of the salt business, had become important enough whereby the imperial government felt they better set up some kind of outpost or something down there to regulate things and make sure the flow of salt northward wasn't interrupted. So this put Hong Kong on the China history map for the first time, though no one had yet coined that term Hong Kong. Pearls and commercial fishing were the other two big Hong Kong businesses besides salt. We sort of take salt for granted in our time, but a thousand years ago and more, this was a very precious commodity. Not like gold, but humankind doesn't need gold to survive, but salt, pretty important to human survival. So it was precious in that way. And because of this, the imperial government established an office down in that part of China. And to be honest, not a lot to report after they did that. Very little in the way of important historic events were recorded around this structure they built to house whatever the necessary number of officials and staff were required to regulate the operation. And the building constructed was called a yamen. This acted as their headquarters. A yamen is just a name for any government office in feudal China. Readers of Chinese history have all heard of the Zhongli Yamen, the foreign office during the Qing Dynasty. But this building was called the Yamen, and that's what they called it back then and still today. As far as our story goes, there's only a couple uh, minor blips in the radar between the time of the Song Dynasty, when this outpost was set up, and the 1842 Treaty of Nanjing. The first was in 1668, when additional structures were built on this location next to the Yamen building. And then in 1810, well, there was this fort that had been built during the Qing dynasty on Donglongzhou. This is an island off the Clearwater Bay Peninsula, up in the New Territories. And this fort was abandoned in 1810. And everyone there moved over to this location in present-day Kowloon City, where For all these years, they had this outpost managing the salt trade. And now this little seven-acre patch of land in present-day Kowloon City that would later on become the walled city of Kowloon, all of a sudden became a mixed-use property, so to speak. Both military and administrative personnel all in one. No big deal, not yet. But in 1842, what was no big deal suddenly became of critical strategic importance. The Qing government, after the First Opium War, was reeling from this sudden reversal of fortune for the dynasty, and from that point forward, it was pretty much one long, slow, steady spiral in a downward direction for the dynasty. Losing the island of Hong Kong to a foreign power in perpetuity (laughs) was a bitter pill, and those familiar with the situation up in Beijing saw this long-established, up till now, insignificant, tiny seven-acre outpost to be a useful base of operations to keep an eye on the British and report back what, you know, they were up to. Now, Kowloon didn't get ceded to Britain until 1860, so up till then, this walled city, that didn't have any walls yet, by the way, was secure in its location. And no one in Hong Kong was putting any pressure for these Chinese representatives to vacate the premises yet. In 1847 came the call from someone in charge to fortify this outpost and this is when they built a rectangular shaped wall measuring about 690 by 390 feet that gave the Kowloon walled city its name. Seven years later in 1854 there was a little bit of excitement when the Taiping rebels made it down This far south, and they captured this fort and held it for a few weeks before they were sent packing. It's all nickel and dime stuff. The headliner was in 1898. That's where the story really starts to get interesting. The 1890s, not a proud decade for China. Defeat in 1895 in the first Sino Japanese War. 1898, Germans forced a 99-year lease on Jiaozhou Bay. That's today's Qingdao. They brought the beer recipe with them, as you know. And the Russians, they joined in on the fun and took the Liaodong Peninsula for 25 years. And Britain helped themselves to Weihai Wei, all happening in 1898. And that was just in Shandong. It was 121 years ago when all this happened. But For many in China, it's as if it happened only yesterday. Also in that humiliating year of 1898 came the second convention of Beijing, June 9th. Britain acquired the new territories to give them a little extra elbow room down there and to provide some sort of a protective cushion for their extremely profitable and vibrant enterprise going on in Hong Kong and Kowloon. Now, acquire the new territories they did but only for 99 years, with the lease ending July 1st, 1997. Now that little fort with the wall around it, located in present-day Kowloon City, for half a century going back to the Treaty of Nanjing, nobody really stressed over it. But suddenly after 1898, it was creating all kinds of headaches. And Britain, of course, did not favor this current arrangement. They told the Chinese housed there. They had to go. New times now, they had to pack up and head over to the other side of the Shenzhen River. But at the same time, there were some 700 people living in that walled city. And after some eh, back and forth, the British agreed to let them remain there. But only officials were allowed to be housed inside. No military presence would be tolerated. And they were warned not to interfere in Britain's internal affairs. Down in Hong Kong. But the British were always suspicious that whatever was going on behind those walls wasn't any good for them. And more and more thought was given to hanging an eviction notice to the inhabitants once and for all. So on May 16, 1899, British troops attacked the walled city to get rid of whatever military presence was lurking inside. And when they entered and searched the place, no soldiers. They had all left. All they found was some official working out of the Yamen there and about 150 other residents. And this Yamen building is important because that was and always remained the center of the walled city. Not the geographic center, but the place where the officials worked out of and where daily business with the residents and visitors can be conducted. So, with this attempt to clear out the walled city of all soldiers not working out as expected those Chinese nationals living inside the walls got a reprieve for the time being. And the British adopted an attitude of, we'll deal with this later. I mean, the powers that be figured the dynasty can't be lasting that much longer. And sure enough, 1911, the Qing dynasty finally just rotted away and collapsed. And the following year, the Republic of China was declared. As a kind of workaround to the walled city situation the British gave a stern warning to let everyone know there, we're in charge. We're letting you stay there. Don't cause us any grief. And they pretty much left the place alone. And by 1915, it was even being labeled as Chinese Town on British maps. As the early years of the 20th century progressed, the walled city remained a stone in the boot of the Hong Kong government. In 1933, they came up with a plan to demolish all the old buildings behind those walls and rehouse the 436 squatters inside. And by 1940, just before the Japanese captured Hong Kong in the war, the walled city was cleared out so that all that remained inside was the Yamen and a school building. Then, December 1941, the Japanese took Hong Kong, and then in 1943, they demolished the 13-foot-high, 15-foot-thick walls and used that stone to build up parts of Kai Tak Airport. And that was the end of the famous walls of the Kowloon Walled City. And they were never rebuilt after that. And into our modern times, all the walls were gone, but the name remained. We all know how World War II ends. Japanese surrendered, and Chinese authorities went in and reclaimed the Walled City as their own. And before long, there were as many as 2,000 squatters living there. Now, the British made... Some attempt to get rid of them, but post-World War II, they had their hands full with other more pressing matters than dealing with this seven-acre plot of land. The Civil War up in China was going at full bore, and refugees were pouring into the territory in numbers never seen before. And to the walled city, many of them went. There was some attempt to shut the place down in 1948, but it wasn't as easy as it looked, and the British again gave up as far as putting an end to the current state of affairs there. It's not like the people there represented any clear and present danger to the authorities, so it was left alone. January 1950, a fire swept through the 2,500 or so dwellings located inside the walled city, and 3,500 families were affected, a total of 17,000 people. And since the China government had more things on their mind in 1950 than this, they didn't get involved. And the Hong Kong government, well, they sat on their hands and said, Hey, you guys said you aren't part of our territory. Fix the place yourselves. And that's what they did. Amidst the ruins during the 1950s, they rebuilt. And this newly rebuilt area became the Kowloon-walled city that acquired the look and unsavory reputation we've all heard about. It started to become this lawless place where anything goes. The Hong Kong police repeatedly made attempts to raid the place and stamp out the worst of the crime going on inside. But for the most part, they left it alone. And so it became a haven, a veritable paradise on earth for crime and other social ills like prostitution, drugs, and illegal gambling. In 1959, following a high-profile murder trial, the argument about who was in charge there, on paper anyway, the Hong Kong government or China, it finally came to a head when the Hong Kong government announced that they had jurisdiction inside the walled city, not China. Whatever declarations were made between the British and the PRC, the real ones who ruled the roost inside the walled city were the triads, the Sun Yian and 14K, most notably. And before long, the walled city was converted into a kind of mixed-use, residential, industrial, and a kind of indoor mall of brothels, gaming parlors, opium dens, and other vices. The triad violence during the 60s and 70s got so bad that during the 1960s, police would rarely venture inside unless they were in groups. And throughout the 1960s, it was this golden age of crime and lawlessness inside the walled city. Again, I'm calling it the walled city, but there was no wall there anymore. And then into the 1970s, it got so bad, the government decided to be a little more forceful. And this is when they began to slowly take back control from the triads who ruled the place. But any time the government would start complaining what an eyesore it was and that it Reflected negatively on Hong Kong, you know, and they began talking about tearing the place down. The local residents would always band together in unity and make enough noise so that the government would back down, stop talking about attempts to rebuild this part of Hong Kong. 1973-1974 alone, more than 3,500 police raids netted a total of two tons of drugs and 2,500 arrests. Into the 70s, they kept the pressure on and slowly began to put the squeeze on these gangs running rampant inside the Walled City. And along with the help of concerned Walled City residents, they took the neighborhood back so that by the early 1980s, it wasn't the scourge that it had been in the 60s and 70s. By now, the population living inside the Walled City was at its peak, as high as 50,000 people by some estimates. When you look at a photo of the kowloon Walled City, especially a bird's-eye view, you're immediately struck by how everything is packed together so tightly. I mean, from a distance, it looks like this one giant, massive building. And in a way, that's what it became. After the place started to be rebuilt following the fire in 1950, modular construction was used, and buildings would just be built on top of buildings. I mean, nobody had to stand in line at the city and get permits, you know, or no one had to file their architectural designs and structural analyses and wiring diagrams and all that stuff. You just started building. And all the hallways and stairwells would be interconnected with what was already there. So you could walk from building to building, nine stories up. And any birds that flew over the walled city would always see this one small rectangular hole in the center of the walled city where the yamen was located. Nothing was ever built on top of that. Now, outside the perimeter of the walled city, the Hong Kong government installed eight municipal water spigots that provided fresh water to the residents. And if you didn't feel like going outside, there was one single spigot inside the walled city providing fresh water to everyone. And there were plenty of enterprising youngsters who, you know, for a small fee, would fill those buckets and, you know, bring them up to the various flats of paying tenants. Some electrical power was also installed for residents to draw off of, but not for everyone. And mail service. The government couldn't deny them that. So that was basically it. And any modern convenience or utilities beyond water and mail service, the Kowloon Walled city residents were on their own. Sanitation? That was the residents' job, not the government. There were plenty of schools and kindergartens, some run by religious organizations such as the Salvation Army, and others run by local Hong Kong charities. There was only one single rule of thumb. Well, maybe it was a law, I don't know. But because the Kowloon Walled City was so close to Kai Tak Airport, like right under the runway landing path, the buildings couldn't go any higher than 13 or 14 stories. That was it. You've seen some of those old photos, I'm sure, of 747s coming in for a landing over Kowloon City, you know, where the Kowloon Walled City is contained. And in between the gaps of the buildings at street level, you could look up and these planes would be just a few hundred feet high. You could feel the vibrations at street level. So residents of the Walled City, well, I guess you could throw everyone in Kowloon City in this category as well. They had to put up with a lot of noise pollution. My daughter lives in the Highland Park section of L.A. across from a metro station with this rinky-dink train. And I ask her sometimes, how do you put up with that racket? Well, that wasn't the same as having a 747 or DC-10 and all manners of jet aircraft whizzing over your roof a hundred or so meters above. And and Kai Tak, at its peak, had the busiest single runway in the world, with 36 takeoffs and landings per hour. And it was to the rooftops of these interconnected dwellings that Kowloon Walled City residents went to relax, feel some wind on their face, and get out of the dankness and darkness of their various flats. So that was the place to go unwind, and for kids to go out and play. And other than the sound of the dozen or so 747s or whatever coming in for a landing at Kai every hour, that was a sanctuary for many. And since there was no government rubbish collection to the walled city, a lot of stuff just got hauled to the roof and dumped there. You see, as I said, sunlight was blocked to the interior of the walled city. People didn't have air rights. Everything was built too close together. If you wanted to escape the squalor and didn't want to go take a walk outside, to the roof you went. And there were a lot of rooftops, rooftop additions, and rabbit air antennas everywhere. There was was laundry hanging wherever a cubic meter of wind could blow. And by the mid-80s, there were 10,742 households, counted, living in more than 350 to 400 buildings. And reliable estimates said 35,000 residents or more were bunking down every night in 8,800 or so dwellings on a seven-acre footprint. Where one building began and where another one ended, sometimes you couldn't tell. They often butted up against each other, some with maybe one or two-foot gaps between them. But on the roof, you could easily jump from one building to the next. And these figures didn't include all the businesses. There were 700 or so industrial factories playing their small roles in the Hong Kong economic miracle, most located on the ground floor up to the 5th. These were mainly subcontractors engaged in the metal fabrication business, but eh, there was a little bit of everything. With so many souls all crammed into one place, when you did all the math it added up to something like 1.2 million people per square kilometer. Now, on a bad day, Manhattan has about 27,000 people living per square kilometer. At its peak, the walled city was the most densely populated place on Earth. At street level, well, there were shops selling the same old stuff you could get on any street corner in Kowloon City or Wan or Mongkok. One thing about the walled city that stood out was the number of doctors and dentists practicing without a license. Completely unregulated. A walled City dentist, well, he knew how to give you a root canal, but he didn't necessarily learn it at dental school. Same with the doctors. Even the food stalls. Nobody from the government was stopping by, you know, to check on the hygiene and sanitation. And if you were a big fan of xiang a.k.a. dog meat, There were shops in the Walled City that served it up fresh every day. When I experienced my one tour of the place, I got to see for myself what the inside was like compared to what I had heard. Inside, people were hustling and moving about as much as you'd see anywhere in the districts surrounding the Walled City. It truly was a maze. A labyrinth of staircases, hallways, passageways, and a constant drip of water from above. And God only knows what the source of this dripping water was. Someone's bath water, perhaps, or water used for cooking or cleaning. The drainage system, no, there wasn't any. The TB rate was high there because of this. And the dripping water was a daily fact of life inside the walled city, and residents would often walk with umbrellas inside these slippery dark hallways, one to two meters wide. The only light I could see came from artificial sources. Overhead and lining the sides of the walls were electrical wires installed in no particular order, just hanging loose or bundled together haphazardly. I think more than anything else, those wires and the obviously unsafe manner in which they were installed, that's what seared itself into my memory most. Most of the electrical wires were outside the building to prevent, you know, the electrical fires. But inside, that was probably the one thing to me that stood out, besides the darkness. It just seemed like a massive indoor catastrophe waiting to happen. But a fire that burnt the walled city to the ground is something we never read about, because other than that one mentioned in 1950, it never happened. To me, the parts that I walked through was was like a movie set. To the residents, it was home, and they knew their way around and could navigate the place as easily as anyone could navigate their own neighborhoods. Sounds like a nightmarish place. The opium dens, the brothels, the unlicensed dentists, people dying in the hallways with needles in their arm, the darkness and dampness throughout the structures, the caged balconies overhanging the street. It acquired this terrible reputation and sort of became a metaphor for hell on earth and sometimes after their final fix addicts would just die right where they lay and sometimes their bodies would just get taken to some public restroom and dumped you know like an unwanted sofa on the side of the road but the real truth about it all the walled city of Kowloon wasn't a slum And most certainly wasn't the hell on earth many outsiders described it as. It was home to a lot of people. And people all over this world, including here in the USA, choose to live in these kinds of cramped and uncomfortable places for only one reason. Affordability. That was the greatest draw of the walled city as a housing option for so many You know, with an average size of each flat being something like 250 square feet and rents going for about 35 Hong Kong dollars for a 40 square foot room, that was the place you'd want to live if money was tight. That's a relative term, of course, but people chose to live there because if there was one constant throughout 20th century Hong Kong history, including into our day today, affordable housing for the masses was always a problem. So the Walled City, with rents so low, was an option that many newly arrived immigrants from China gravitated to. And over the decades, it became a tightly knit neighborhood. And people knew each other and banded together to help each other, like any other normal place where people dwelled. At this level of society... No one was putting on any ears or strolled through the dark corridors of the structure with their nose in the air, too good for others, judging people by their shoes or what shirts they wore. Everyone was in this together, and it was as much a friendly, thriving community as you'd find anywhere in Hong Kong. Wherever there are disadvantaged, marginalized, or underprivileged people, you're bound to find religious groups who make it their business to tend to their basic needs. Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, Jewish, Hindu, whatever. In the case of the Kowloon-walled city, it was mostly Protestant groups who gravitated there. And in addition to introducing Jesus into their lives and bringing the good news, these religious groups also brought basic services like education, medical care, and counseling. There are many names, both Western and Hong Kong Chinese, who stood out as champions of the residents of the walled city. One name in particular that I'll never forget, because I remember her from my nine years in Hong Kong, was Jackie Pullinger. She was a good example of someone who received the call from above to serve as a missionary somewhere. And in 1966, the year Revolver was released, in her early 20s, she left Croydon, south of London, and ended up in Hong Kong. And when she got there, famously, with 10 bucks in her pocket, or it may have been 10 quid, or 10 bob I don't know, she knew this was the place. And she's been in Hong Kong ever since. And Jackie Pullinger ended up working at a primary school in the Walled City. And over the next half century, she poured all her love and efforts into helping out those Walled City residents who needed some support with You know, kicking their drug addiction and trying to help women quit a life of prostitution. And in the mid-60s, when she began her work, it was that period in the Walled City's history when triads ran the place. And she wasn't afraid of them and got to know many of these gangsters. And she brought Christianity into many of their lives and provided an alternative path to a new life outside the violent world they were stuck in. She set up youth centers and outreach programs there to offer support to troubled teens in search of options other than drugs or a life of crime. And in 1981, she established the St. Stephen's Society that has as its mission, quote, to preach the gospel, reach the poor, and see people set free through faith in Jesus Christ, end quote. She wrote a book called Chasing the Dragon, One Woman's Struggle Against the Darkness of Hong Kong's Drug Dens, that came out in 1980, and I read it when I was in Hong Kong, so I always knew of her. I'll have a link to that book in the show notes. Very inspirational. And with this book, Jackie Pullinger provided a window into this world and the work she had done over the decades. The Sino-British Joint Declaration, signed December 19, 1984, by Zhao Ziyang and Margaret Thatcher provided the roadmap for the restoration of Chinese sovereignty over Hong Kong. And a lot of things changed after that. And one of these things was the fate of the Kowloon-Walled City. And on the morning of January 14, 1987, Great Britain and China jointly agreed to tear the place down and deal with it once and for all. And a couple months later, the Hong Kong government passed the place off to the Urban Council to come up with a plan to put the land to good public use. The government ended up shelling out about 2.7 billion Hong Kong dollars, that's about 350 million, to compensate about 33,000 or so residents and businesses located inside the walled city. I recall from those days, not everyone went quietly. There was some heavy protesting and a lot of people didn't want to leave. Between November 1991 and July 1992, the last of the Mohicans were forced out of this minuscule city within a city. And one little sidebar, after everyone had been evacuated and before the wrecking balls came, the empty walled city was used as a movie set for the climactic scene of this 1993 Jackie Chan movie called Crime Story. It was all about the Teddy Wong kidnapping in 1990. They started to tear the place down on March 23, 1993 and kept at it for a year. By April 1994, it was gone. And once they had that taken care of, the Urban Council broke ground on the Kowloon Walled City Park. They spent $76 Hong Kong dollars on the construction of this 330,000 square foot park. And it was completed in August 1995 and Governor Chris Patton, Officially opened the place three days before Christmas on December 22nd, 1995. Now with a history that went back at least to the Southern Song. When it came time for the demolition, they didn't just start blasting away. The Antiquities and Monuments Office was invited in to survey the area first and see if anything that had been overlooked had any archaeological or cultural value. The centerpiece of their digging around was the old Yamen office and bits and pieces of the south gate of the walled city, which served as the main entrance. They were also able to discover the foundation for the walled city walls as well as the location of the east gate. The Yamen office was fully restored and remains one of the main attractions of this urban oasis. And in Japan, halfway between Tokyo and Yokohama in the city of Kawasaki, there's a fun house where they recreated the whole look and feel of the Kowloon Walled City. The detail from all their months of research is fantastic. And they even incorporated some actual bits and pieces of the Walled City. The graffiti, too. It's called Anato no Funhouse. Just Google Kawasaki Fun Warehouse, and there's all kinds of info on it. Pictures, too. Another book I could recommend is City of Darkness, Life in the Kowloon Walled City by Ian Lampett and Greg Gerard. Those two spent years inside the Walled City just prior to its demolition and got some real nice photos and interviews. I'll have a link to that, too. You know, the Kowloon Walled City, it has captured the imagination of so many outsiders who were drawn to its history and the whole culture of the place, the nefarious way it was portrayed, and the reality were two different things. There were residents there who eh, had a little money and probably could have afforded to live elsewhere, but chose to stay due to the low cost of living. But overwhelmingly, most of the residents who hunkered down every night in the walled city were poor and had little money. There were every manner of desperate people who found comfort and camaraderie there, yeah, there were the drugs, the opium, the rampant prostitution, and triads making life miserable for many, but that was just one facet of the Kowloon-Walled City. Like I said, it was like this little city within a city, and people were born there, grew up there, went to school in the neighborhood, and some continued to live there, and some went on to bigger and better things in life. It was really... Just another neighborhood once you look beyond the darker side of the walled city. Anyway, it's maybe a 15-minute walk down Junction Road from the Lok Fu MTR station if you want to go check it out one day. Take a selfie in front of the Yamen and send it to me. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. Once again, I beg you to go to Patreon.com and become one of my patrons for $3 a month for less than the price of a grande drip at Starbucks, you too can support the show and hear exclusive stories from my checkered past. Go to patreon.com or come to my website at teacup.media for a link to the page. This here is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from blazing hot and bone dry Los Angeles, California. Must be August. Hoping once again you'll come back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.